Right. Hello, everyone. This is episode two, going through the Scrum Guide again. So we'll we'll continue where we left off. All right. So Scrum values. This is uh, to me. This seems like all good and absolutely makes sense within an, an agile team. But when you have to convert almost like a, a company from their old old school ways to being more agile, it's uh, they don't have these values already in. How do you enforce them or how do you bring them about? It's part of it just about, you know, earlier we were talking about, you know, there's a bit that says just start, just just follow the guide and learn the moves and learn the events and 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 learn what value it gives. And I wonder if part of part of the adopting these five values come from just embracing the the system if you like and one of the things that i i frequently say to my teams um is that james clear line about you don't rise to the level of your goals you fall to the level of your systems you know it, it, teams can reach for their goal if you don't have a system to help you get there, then you may not you may not reach it. But if you've got the habits in place that incrementally help you reach that goal, even on your worst days, then as as it was the former 49ers coach said, the score will look after itself. You know, you'll reach the goal. You'll yeah. And I wonder if part of it is is just the fact that these these values are so built into the way that Scrum works that I mean I don't remember I, this has just made me think maybe I need to to be making these values more explicit in the things that I say with teams, but actually the way that the teams often work. They're exhibiting commitment and focus and openness and respect and courage anyway. I think I agree with Gareth, but I think the commitment one is the easiest to spot, especially working in Scrum. However, as you progress, I think there's they become less and less obvious, like as you go through the sentences, because courage to have the courage to do the right thing uh, and to work on tough problems, that may not happen as often. And it's it's also interesting that they use one sentence for each of these because as values, they, they apply in so many different levels and they should apply to so many different levels, but it's also a bit open-ended. So having the courage to do the right thing, sometimes we just, as Gareth mentioned, and by the way, uh, the book is Atomic Habits by James Clear for whoever wants to read it. Uh, to do the right thing sometimes means to step outside your comfort zone. Uh, we don't rise to that as often as we want to. So perhaps that's something that we can actively pursuit as as scrum masters i think that's my take on it
Yeah, but especially kind of going back to the courage, what you just said, in a company that almost like values hierarchy, you know, or the or, almost like old school value, let's call them. Um, cur- what's the difference between kind of being cur- courageous or having the courage to, to speak out and almost being a bit reckless or reckless with your own, you know, being a bit hesitate to say stupid but uh it's effectively what you can get persecuted for being courageous in the wrong environment it it, it courage requires uh, a certain what's it called uh company culture to be allowed yeah to some extent but there's also a fine line like even in a in the right company culture you may have the courage uh, to step up and say some things and you may call it courage, but it it can just annoy people uh, and you can think yourself courageous. So it's always, it, it always depends. It's quite hard to, to give a simple, proper answer <laughs> where you draw the line between courage and something else. Uh, but yeah, I, definitely I agree with the fact that the more hierarchy there is, the the more restricted these values can get. So respect may become fear and courage may, may take a completely different shape. Openness may not exist to some extent. It just, you present what needs to be presented. You don't really improve transparency in any way. Focus is not something that you commit towards. It's something that is given, passing, passed down, sorry. Uh, so yeah, I think Scrum works best at just one level between teams rather than going up the hierarchy chain. And I think these values showcase that. And I think, and I think I said this in the last episode that, you know, there are agile frameworks like XP, like DSTM, that have these kind of prerequisites that said, you know, if you're going to be using this, you really need buy-in from from above, from management, and make sure you've got that um, empowerment from them, and that they will empower the teams and allow the teams to to make the decisions that, that you know the suitable decisions or the yeah the, the, the appropriate decisions. And there's something that I say to my children a lot. Um, we don't do brave things because we're brave. We become brave by doing brave things, you know. And I think there's that the courage is the one that I always hold on to <laughs> when I'm working with teams and working with companies. And I worked with this fantastic business analyst who used to speak the truth, even if it made his voice wobble. And you could see his nervousness and you could hear it in his voice, but he had that courage just to say, I think we're doing the wrong thing here. Or what if we did it this way? And I got so much, um, I had so much respect for that, but I, I, I got so much from from watching that and being part of those, those events um, to try and do the same. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and then I guess it, it's you, you change kind of a, a culture within within a, a system that doesn't maybe is too hierarchical. The first person to speak out is always kind of the hardest, but then everything else follows follows suit after that. Once you break the mold, it's almost 
yeah, you start making the first few steps. But another question that I kind of want to maybe focus on is what is the difference between the value of openness and the pillar, uh, the scrum pillar of transparency? They seem like they overlap. And he's gone. <laughs> he's now transparent. <laughs> <laughs> I want to keep that joke. An, an amazing moment to drop his connection. <laughs> uh. <laughs> okay. Oh, he's back. Yeah. So it's effectively what what is the difference between the the pillar? Can you be transparent without being open, and vice versa? I think the transparency is more passive. And the openness is more active. So the transparency is about making the work visible and making the artifacts of work visible. So like information radiators, what is the work? Putting putting the work up on a board, whether it's a physical board in a room or it's a Jira board or a Trello board. And um, it's, it's telling us, it's showing us the information. It's showing us where the bottlenecks are. It's showing us where the flow is happening. I think that that openness is is an attitude from the team about a willingness for them to be transparent about what's what's going on. I think that's a really good answer. Uh, I'm not even sure if I should add on to that because that's a really good answer. But it's it's like we we uh, talk about now leading and lagging measures. Basically, transparency is a lagging measure and. Open openness is a leading measure in this case. Yeah, right, perfect. And moving on to the Scrum team. Okay, so I, I, it, it does go into detail afterwards of what the developers and the, every single role is. But um, com coming back to this, there, these are the only roles defined within kind of the Scrum guide within the the framework overall. However, you do end up in a lot of cases having project managers, having different other different roles, uh, basically almost put in or having to be converted or is that, would you consider that to be still Scrum or is that as Andre put it before Scrum, but well, they don't necessarily work in a scrum team if it's a project manager and you can still do scrum if you have other roles. Uh, so that's my opinion, at least. Yeah, and it does say earlier in the scrum guide that, you know, if anyone's getting value or putting in value or involved in the creation of the product, then they're just regarded as part of the, not just, but they are regarded as part of the, the development team the developers. One thing we may want to unfold is what the Scrum team consists of because it specifically defines one Scrum master, one PO and developers. And there's so many, there have been so many discussions and I think I've recently read an article that for example, the Scrum Master was not intended 
to be a full-time role within the Scrum team. I'm not sure if that's true. I, I may look it up and in case I find it, we can link it. Uh, but what do we think about these roles? Like, should the Scrum Master, uh, since we're on that, should the Scrum Master be a full-time role on the team? Yes. <laughs> in, in the sense... Yeah. Speaking as a Scrum Master, yes, please. Speaking as someone who gets paid to do this. Yeah. Well, in the sense that, should you as a Scrum Master, should you have just one team? I've, in the past, I've worked with one team. I've worked with two teams. I've worked with three teams simultaneously the three teams god bless them um were largely like neglected feral children um <laughs> um no they weren't that bad but um i really didn't know which way was up most of the time i would be racing from one event to another trying to sh context switch between wh what were the issues that we're dealing with what what's the product that we're building how can i best support them it wasn't it wasn't manageable i think two is probably the maximum um uh, yeah i love working with just one but you do get to a point especially if they kind of get to be quite mature quite quickly you do begin to get a bit bored um because they're doing stuff they're thinking in that way that, that's a good point would you say uh gareth that if those three scrum teams would have been working on the same product backlog and the same uh projects would it be easier to help them to be their scrum master i suspect it would because that that aspect you're not switching between and it's then just you're just then thinking about get how do you get the most out of the team and you're focusing on them and and their skills and their abilities and the challenges that they're coming up with so it, it, it kind of uh then would it be useful to just specify one would definitely one product owner per product you, more than that you end up kind of uh butting heads and well less than that it's obviously non-functional but maybe having once well one scrum master should not be split between more than one project or maybe maximum two projects, two products. It's hard to be prescriptive about this. I think as Gareth mentioned, you also take into account, uh, first of all, team composition, also how mature the teams are. And I think, I mean, in my case right now, it just happens that I've got four teams, but two of the teams are forming and it it's the the workload is not yet I'm, I'm not yet fully on both teams that i feel the stretch from from everywhere else so i think it it depends because when they're going to be fully formed and when when they're going to start uh, being more productive, uh, for lack of better words, then there will be a lot more issues. So right now it's just baby steps. And, uh, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ifs and, and a lot of conditions to this question. And I think Gareth also wanted to say something and I, I stepped in before you. Sorry. No, no, no. Um, but what you were just saying just reminded me, Mike Cohn, who's one of the big writers and 
in, in the, the Scrum world, um, has a really good paper called Situational Scrum Mastering, which I found really helpful, where he talks about the maturity of different teams and and how our you know what's our response or what's our approach to, to different teams. So if a, a, team, a team's fairly new, we we pretty much take a kind of telling pers- perspective. We, we, we teach them the, the moves, we teach them how, how to do things. You then, once they've kind of got a bit more maturity, it's it's more of a kind of selling, more of a kind of coaching, more of a kind of trying to pull pull them out. And then I can't quite exactly remember the other two, but it, as you, as they progress in their kind of maturity and, and their adoption of it, you then start uh, delegating stuff to them. And, and then you get to a point where you're pretty much just supporting them. Um, like a kind of, I don't know, potter or something, just kind of gently nudging them in the right direction. Um, I always see my role as a scrum master to try and do myself out of a job, to get the team to be as as agile and um, and thinking in, in, in that way themselves that I just have to sit there and nod. <laughs> and be amazed. Um, yeah. <laughs> and praise them. Yeah, I think... That's the goal. That's the target. Uh, I never got there so far that I'm not useful anymore in a team, but I think there's also the idea ingrained in us that there can always be something better. So perhaps the job is never done in that sense. Well, and, and the, there's the instinct of self-preservation of, I, I still want to feel useful. I still want to do, do things. So you, you have to almost go against your instinct of, of keeping your, keep making yourself useful or continuing to be useful of just, if you get the team to be fully managed and there's no more need for you, you've won. You've kind of, you're, you're ready to move on. I want to, I want to ask a question here, but also Gareth wanted to say something. So I don't want to interrupt you again. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think there's another factor. This we were talking about the size of teams. It depends how big the team is. Because if you've got a team of three people, three developers, a product owner, and a scrum master, that's five people. That's ten lines of communication in that team. If you've got ten, as it says here, ten or fewer. If you've got ten people in a team, uh, that's forty-five lines of communication, and that just you know that's far more complex to to deal with. Just communication besides their you know personality clashes and and all of that sort of thing. So yeah, so you know if I had three teams of of three developers, that seems to me to be a lot more manageable than dealing with thirty people. Fair enough. So I want to ask uh, the question, which was if like, what's your opinion on this? Because I I want to. I want to see if it's similar to mine, but at some point, let's say you're a scrum master for a team for over a year or over two years. Do you think that at some point, perhaps you're too close to it? And if you don't find a way to step back to revisit some of the problems and objectively look at them, do you think it's also worth considering swapping teams to get like a fresh pair of eyes working on that team i think there's value in stability within a team and familiarity i think there's other ways that you can get that external opinion you know bring in another 
agile coach to observe, to ask questions. I've done that in the past and that was hugely valuable. Just somebody came in and they sat and he took notes and he observed for a few days and then he we sat and had a conversation and he said, I've noticed this and I've noticed this. And it was so valuable. So essentially having like a mentor as well, or, you know, whether it's a co-coach um, or a mentor, um, there's definitely ways that you can improve without having to disrupt the whole team. Don't take my team away from me. I love them. <laughs> and kind of instinctively, when you ask that question, I, I just thought of that would probably be not, not necessarily bringing an, a, an external scrum master. It wouldn't be your call. It would probably be the team's call. You'd, you'd probably ask them if they feel the need of a fresh perspective. Uh, I think it, 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 just kind of making that, it's almost a making a top-down decision, which I, I, I'd want to avoid of going like, okay, I need to move. I, we need to switch to Scrum Masters. If the developers feel probably that it, it you know, a, a new perspective would be very useful, that might be a, a useful exercise or, or simply as Gareth pointed out, have somebody shadow you and, and uh, give you, you know, feedback, give you that new perspective, but just changing teams like uh, football teams, change coaches. It, it's not, not as useful. I don't think. Yeah. At the same time, you also may have, and I've encountered this, you may have teams that, completely reject the scrum master because not I, I honestly think that not all scrum masters are fit for all teams and uh, there are certain personalities that don't really match or there's a style work style or anything it can be a lot of things so perhaps even that if you identify it even later on in the game even after six months or one year it can be more valuable if there's a switch happening rather than stick with stability, almost like a relationship. If you, if you find that something doesn't work rather than stick it out because you made a choice and you want to be stable, it, well, you, yeah, you here, adapt. Here's a, here's a controversial take to that. Um, be agile more than just be a scrum master. And if, the team rejects the scrum master as a position. Maybe XP works best for that team. Maybe you have a different framework that uh, fits that organization or that team best. I mean, we had guests on uh, in previous episodes, developers that were team leads that kind of were working in a bit of a XP framework-ish, although they didn't call it XP, but where they had a team lead doing a lot of the responsibilities of the scrum master does and they didn't really want a scrum master so it, it just might be that not every organization needs to implement scrum in the in the in the purest form as much as i agree with that i also know that a lot of my friends who are working in it have done scrum quite poorly in the past and they never actually had a proper scrum master. So they don't really see the value in a scrum master and that propagates and that information propagates because those team leads have 
once been juniors and they never had scrum masters. They only had different colleagues or seniors that they looked up to and they always worked in that way. And uh, same as we had someone come in and say, basically it was Marius that said, he doesn't find a lot of value in retrospectives. And someone with the same role was on the opposite end of that spectrum saying that retrospectives are, uh, according to him, one of the most important events in Scrum. So it, I think it's also, this is highly dependent on your experience with it. Obviously it doesn't work for everyone, but there's more to unfold with that. Absolutely. I think a, a bad scrum master does a lot more harm than good to the industry as a whole, not let alone to the team, because it just leaves them with the impression that scrum is not for them, even though they've never tried proper scrum. Has anyone had teams that were bigger than 10, like quite bigger, let's say 14, 15 people? Constantly, even me right now. Uh, and that's one of the things that I've been fighting because it's a company that's in between it's almost like in the middle of the transition going from a waterfall system to an agile system and i managed to allow me uh to split the team in two and have two separate scrum teams working on the same project just to make it easier to to uh basically manage themselves it took a long time to to get to that that point the Teams would have benefited from getting there, I think I believe, a lot quicker. But you know, it's still I think if, if you have more than ten people, definitely a lot more than ten, is just beneficial to just uh have them split themselves into. I, I had the opposite. I had two teams that I was looking after, but they didn't have all the skills required to do their own work. So we actually merged the two for, for the events, for the scrum events, like sprint planning. And we, so we essentially had one sprint backlog and then worked out each sprint, who were the right people to work on different pieces of work based on the skills required. Um, and then they went off and worked on them on separate boards. Um, <laughs> So we had, yeah. So, so yeah. So there were still two teams, but we had one sprint backlog. That's interesting. Um, and it worked, and it worked really, really well. Um, and uh, but what was really, really great was the fact that um, we had, here, here were two teams who vaguely knew each other, but actually by the end of it, a couple of sprints down the line, their relationships were so much better, um, and the openness between them was so much better. Um, I'm not sure what happened to them. I suspect that they went back to being two teams once they'd kind of, you know, backfilled all the skills and, and, and the roles, but I'd, I'd left by then. Um, but yeah, that was, that was an interesting way. And, and, and that, but that came from the team pretty much as well. We kind of sat them down and said, how are we going to do this? And, and they suggested, well, I know this stuff and you know that stuff, so let's let's work together. I was really proud of them. We're actually at that part in the Scrum Guide where it says that teams should share the product goal and the product backlog, but it doesn't say the sprint backlog. So it's an interesting, it's the first I hear about sharing sprint backlog. Well, I think, yeah, to put it this, 
you, you have to be agile first and kind of a scrum master second. So if there's an agile solution, then absolutely implement it. And yeah, as you said, Andre, it doesn't come to think of it, it doesn't break any scrum guide rules, but even if it bends them a little bit, if it works, it works. I, I got part of my inspiration from that. There's a guy, Carl Scotland, who used to work for BBC, and he wrote a paper called Agile Planning with a Multi-Customer, Multi-Project, Multi-Discipline Team. And he talks about that kind of needing to use one single backlog, but then multiple teams working on that backlog. Um, uh, yeah, it's a really interesting um, article. I'm writing down all of the, the books that we're talking about, and I'm going to try to to link them in the description. In fact, I wrote a blog post about it. Oh, give me the link to the blog post as well. I'll definitely put it in the, the description. Cool. All right. So moving on to the developers. A first question that kind of pops up in my head, and this is something that I've, I think I've st maybe struggled with, not necessarily myself, but the team, uh, because it's a, almost like a multicultural team from people from all over. The difference between calling somebody a developer or a software engineer or programmer or using these terms interchangeably, it can be quite confusing. Uh, and developers here basically includes business analysts, testers, anything that the skills, that this, any specific skill that the team would need. But I've noticed, I don't know if this is just the environment that I work in, that developers is mainly just refers to software engineers, programmers. Is that the case with uh, with you guys as well? Or is it, is it just a unique situation that I'm in? I think definitely for me, yes. Uh, I was, I, I also, when, when I, when I was a software engineer or I did coding, I also referred to myself as a developer or a programmer. So I think it was just the lingo that we had at least in Romania. So it is confusing though, when you are discussing the scrum guide and it just happens that today I discussed the Scrum Guide with a team that was really new to Scrum. Uh, one of the teams that I mentioned earlier. And I was pretty much presenting the Scrum Guide, kind of best practices, uh, stuff to stay away from. And... I kept mentioning developers <laughs> and at some point someone asked if, if it's just the developers or is also the QA involved in that because I never mentioned the QA and I had to specifically say that as the scrum guide says, like developers is used with a capital D there. And at least that way, whenever I use developers in the scrum guide sense, I, I use capital D because it's, to me, it's easier to spot and separate from the typical developers that I used to call. So I'm not sure that's, that's my case, at least that. Uh, we could solve this really easily by using the term that DSDM uses, which is solution development team. 
which covers covers solution and solution they cover solution developers solution testers so engineers QAs but they also include the business analyst because that's a role in that that framework yeah. the team leader and the business ambassadors so the customers actually sit within the team within the solution development team which you know is a kind of XP thing as well um, so yeah I I, I frequently remind my teams that when we're talking about developers it just means anyone that's helping to build the solution that we're creating they'll get it eventually yeah but th that's kind of what uh, as you pointed out is would it be uh, gareth would it be useful to just use a different terminology to avoid confusion i think so but i i frequently use that anyway the solution development team that's quite clear I'm usually using the team uh, as an overall. Yeah. Even that's confusing as well. But sometimes I, I feel like if I mention the team, then it's clear that it's the developers, uh, at least in my case. Because the Scrum Master almost acts, well, depends from organization to organization, but almost acts outside the team as much as inside. And product owner same is is not necessarily part of the team in that sense so the team that is uh responsible for the daily sync or <laughs> for the increment then that's the team no one thing uh i want to point out which is something that uh it's nice to reiterate the first thing that they are accountable for is the sprint backlog. And although I think this is quite common knowledge, so I'm not saying anything new, but the difference between the sprint backlog and the product backlog is that the developers are accountable for the sprint backlog. And whenever something comes in or out, they need to be they need to agree with that. So changes done to the sprint backlog should happen with the developers in mind and with their with their collaboration. Because I think that starting as a Scrum Master, this wasn't clear to me in the beginning. And I just want to reiterate for anyone there who is encountering the same issues, uh, this is something that is a good practice and it should happen in proper scrum and a, and a useful phrase when you're bringing things into a sprint backlog a useful phrase to use is if we're saying yes to this what are we saying no to if there's questions of priority i found that to be a very powerful question yeah that's a good one and it is a negotiation yep. and one thing uh, another thing which i want to mention is even if the sprint backlog changes the sprint goal should not change. Mm -hmm. So that's that's another one to keep an eye out for. And it makes sense. And I know a lot of teams will bring stuff in to the sprint and feel that it's fit, fixed in stone. But you know, as you, I, I, because we're working in iterative, incremental development, as you dig into things. As you learn more during the sprint, it's okay to start breaking stuff down. And, you know, this is a big story, but it would be better as two smaller stories. Or 
actually we don't need this bit so let's bin that um it's okay it's it's the team's it's the team's artifact to to help them to be transparent to help them to adapt you know inspect and adapt that happens not just you know at these big events like the retrospective this happens every day in the daily scrum the daily scrum is part of part of sprint planning it's you know what's our goal how far have we got what what direction do we need to go today when we're going to get to the daily scrum uh i think it's going to be an interesting topic which will be next episode most likely yeah probably probably but yeah and it's also it it, it interesting that it uh, specifies uh instilling quality by adhering to a definition of done it I guess it's because it's a more, and we'll get to the definition of done a little bit later, but uh, it doesn't specifically say uh, kind of defining or kind of creating the definition of done, even though it, they are involved in it quite a bit, but uh, at, at least in my, in my case, like is usually the, the developers that the scrum team that, that, that develops that works with the product owner, but it's uh it's they them that uh, I guess flushes out the definition of done more. So, is that the same situation? Same situation with you guys, or um, is somebody else's responsibility entirely? I wouldn't necessarily say it's somebody else's responsibility, but I have encountered uh, places where the definition of done wasn't fully in the hands of the Scrum team, and I have encountered places where. A team that was newly formed just went through the definition of done and tried to figure out what to put in there and what to leave out. So perhaps, yeah, I, I, I think it's trying not to be prescriptive at this point and just saying instilling quality by adhering to the definition of done basically says that make sure the increment at the end of the sprint meets the definition of done and there can be multiple definitions of done depending on what you're looking at you could have a definition of done for a user story how do we know when this is done um but you could also have say for example a definition of done for a deployment you know to make sure that there's quality in that particular task perfect moving on to product owner it seems, maybe to me, it kind of it seems it's just having a singular, almost like a purpose, purposely placed bottleneck for the product, just to kind of have a singular vision for what the product is to, for cohesion, uh, most importantly. But um, I don't know. It 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 just my personal experience. I think I'm pretty sure this is just kind of completely different from all other organizations, but I haven't had very positive, uh, I guess, experiences with product owners, but that's mainly because of experience and because of, I guess, not quite understanding their, their roles. It's weird how you framed it, that there's a bottleneck. <laughs> so the, the product owner is a bottleneck. I'm not sure of that, but it's understandable why there should be one product owner that looks at the product backlog and not a committee. And this may be the worst quote of the 
series so far, but <laughs> I was watching um, a TV show called Dark. And in the second season, an inspector comes over to look at a difficult case of some missing people. And the town is rioting that they only send one person and why that is. And basically, he I think he quotes someone else, but basically he says that if 10 different people look at an elephant from 10 different angles, they describe 10 different things. But if one person looks at the elephant from 10 different angles, he describes or she describes the elephant. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I think uh, that's the case with the product owner as well. So the product owner should be the elephant in the room and we don't discuss that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the backlog in this case, uh, <laughs> the elephant. <laughs> and the product owner, uh, you know, is, is, is also there as like the pseudo customer in a way to represent mm -hmm. the end user. So yeah, I mean, maybe it doesn't state that explicitly here, but um, yeah, you know, I would expect a product owner to be, to be listening to and meeting with customers and users and to under fully understand what is it they need, you know, so that they're, they're building value. They're, they're building value into the backlog. Um, stuff that will actually get used yeah. that will actually be useful yeah and uh, just going back to the the first comment i think I, I almost like purposely used the word bottleneck there because a bottleneck isn't necessarily a negative thing it's it's a part of a book that actually you recommended but it's mm -hmm. a really brilliant book the bottleneck rules mm -hmm. which is uh you, you think of where the bottlenecks are and where where they should be because every company will inevitably have the bottleneck but if you put it at the most in the more appropriate place you end up maximizing efficiency and i think this is one of those examples if you you end up creating the product owner as the bottleneck for the pr uh, product development then that is maximum efficiency for for the team that's clark Cheng, isn't it the bottleneck really? yeah 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 clark Cheng. Um, <laughs> yeah and yeah and, and yeah, you want the like you said, you want the bottleneck in the right place. Regard, regarding what Gareth mentioned, that it doesn't specify that the product owner should have uh, also the users in mind, or it it, it kind of says that the product owner may represent the needs of many stake stakeholders. Now, the stakeholders throughout the Scrum Guide is purposefully vague. Yeah, mm -hmm. and one can argue that that includes the end user as well yeah that's true yeah, isn't it absolutely that's that balance between what does the business need and what do the users need poor space people say scrum masters have a hard time i think product owners have a hard time <laughs> no i i genuinely think that it's a, a lot more of a technical role and it's not it's it's almost harder in certain aspects to do, and it's not, uh, I guess, respected as much as as it maybe should be. It is a it's both soft skills and technical skills, like a mixture to to uh, to have the product be coherent and basically have have efficiency. I've worked with some amazing product owners that just astounded me. I mean, one was. I don't know how old, 19 years old, absolutely astonishing young man, knew the thing inside out, 
knew everybody they need to speak to, knew the, the, the end users. Um, I was, yeah, blown away by him. So yeah, there are definitely, uh, just to give you some, some hope, Vlad, there are some good product owners out there. Yeah. It is a hard role. So yeah, going on to the Scrum Master. So let's, I think there's a lot, this, this is going to be a big topic. So there's a lot to unfold here and especially having three Scrum Masters in a podcast. That's, that's a tough one. So uh, let's start with the beginning. So you are accountable for establishing Scrum as defined in the Scrum guide. First of all, just let that sink in. <laughs> and indeed, this is, this is the empowerment part, which I think there's also, I think I just saw a discussion recently on LinkedIn where a lot of scrum masters, oh, I forgot who posted it, so I'm sorry. But uh, I saw a post that a lot of scrum masters are looking to get empowered. But should you, I mean, it says that the scrum masters are true leaders. If you're a true leader, should you actually wait to be empowered? Or how do you grab that power? I'm not sure if this is necessarily a question or just an open-ended thought just to put out there. But yeah, I think my main approach would be to find a way to be empowered or to find a way to to be that Scrum advocate in case you decide that Scrum would be the best approach for the team. So I'm not saying be a Scrum preacher, which is a big no-no, but be a Scrum teacher. I think a useful term that is not necessarily here, but it's, it's used quite a lot is a servant leader, uh, where it's basically trying to empower the, the team. But effectively, what I've also kind of uh, noticed in, in a lot of situations is you, you need to, and this might be because I come from a business analyst kind of background, the, the way that I had to approach things was simply understand the limitations of the company and how how agile they're willing to be and implement Scrum in the best way possible within those limitations. So you find the limits of your empowerment by basically you know, analyzing, asking questions, talk, communicating with, with your, almost like with the organization, the higher ups, obviously you try to negotiate to uh, have the, those limits as wide as possible, but then you understand how empowered you are within within the limits, within the each organization's limits. I, I like that term servant leadership as well, um, which was removed from the previous version of the Scrum Guide because they, they, in that, that paragraph they did talk about um, Scrum Masters are servant leaders. And they removed that because they wanted more of an emphasis on leadership, that yes, we were servant leaders, but there was a misinterpretation seemingly that Scrum masters are supposed to be servants first and leaders second. And they wanted to kind of just say, look, you're true leaders. And part of that is about servanthood 
but serving the team. And and it took a while because I really like that phrase. It took a while for me to kind of accept that. Uh, to to go to a quick kind of example of that, uh, a slightly different approach to the servant leader, uh, I guess, phrase is uh, a book, uh, Turn That Ship Around, uh, which basically just refers to imp- implementing a leader-leader system in which you're empowering the people underneath you to be leaders in their own right. So I think it's that may be a bit more clearer than just servant leader if, if that creates that misconception. I think that uh, certainly in this, this, this description of Scrum Masters, right at the beginning, the Scrum Master is accountable for establishing Scrum as defined in the Scrum Guide. And that goes back to what we were saying about um, not becoming Scrum Guide police. It's about establishing the team, about helping, you know, at the at the start, the team learning the rules and following the rules. It doesn't say that we should continue and force Scrum as it is defined in the Scrum Guide. You know, it is that idea that it's a framework and that as we mature, we begin to kind of embody what we're doing. And we don't, we don't, later on, we don't need to follow the Scrum Guide to the to the letter. Sorry, that, that, that's a very common mistake of using the Scrum Guide as a Bible. That That's basically the Scrum Preacher I was referring to. I, I do have the Scrum Guide on speed dial in my, uh, my my work browser. I frequently bring it up and go, occasionally go, you know, the Scrum Guide says maybe we should be returning to that if they've kind of strayed way off the path. Sometimes it's um, good to come back to, to the basics. I, I, wa- I was a preacher, but I'm not a Scrum preacher. <laughs> For those who've watched, watched, listened to my episode. Yeah, they don't go together. Uh, so it says the scrum master is accountable for the scrum team's effectiveness now this was always a tough thing for me to understand how good or how bad i am as a scrum master and quite often the feedback you get from the team well at least directly it's not transparent enough or maybe that is i mean i usually end let's say retrospectives with what am i not doing well enough or how else can i help or what extra thing i can do to ease your lives and i think all every time i i get silence no answer so i don't i don't get enough feedback now Scrum master being accountable for the scrum masters for, for the scrum team's effectiveness. How would you, let's say, if you're a manager, how do you think you would rate how good a scrum master is? Would would that statement be enough? Like, if the team is doing good, that means their scrum master is good. It's it's way too vague for me, I guess. In in a way, it's yeah. It it makes it hard for you to stand out because uh, it it almost suggests that being a good scrum master, you almost have to be invisible. That the team should work uh, really well together without you being center stage. Uh, I think that that is true, but then it it makes it. 
don't know. It's almost counterintuitive that you, especially when you you in within the same description, you use the word leadership, and it's almost like inv- invisible leadership. It um, it it's h- tough, but I, I I the way that I look at it is if if the team communicates effectively, if the team it, it almost like grows together is at least going in the right direction. The entire Scrum team is accountable for creating a valuable, useful increment every sprint. That's what what the Scrum team final paragraph in the Scrum Guide says. So if the Scrum Master is effective, then he is enabling the team to be accountable for creating a valuable, useful increment every sprint. Are they meeting their sprint goal? Are they delivering value every sprint? Surely that's the priority. It's almost like if the Scrum team achieves uh, its goal of of delivering that value and they're not at each other's throats and they kind of work very well together and they're happy together, then you know you've kind of, you've, you've ticked all the boxes. Even so, it's a maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think I might take a team that hates each other but gets the work done, over a team that love each other but are just don't don't achieve anything. But I guess it, it, it's taking that team that hate each other and get the work done and trying to get you know kind of uh, diminish the negativity or the hostility within the team. That should, in in turn, increase the the effectiveness of the team even yeah. in, even further. Absolutely. Yeah, I was maybe just being a bit facetious there. No, yeah. <laughs> All right. Let me let me also address something, which Gareth, we already discussed about this, but now we're doing it officially, and I think you can uh, you can scroll a bit back up, Vlad how the Scrum Master serves the team. And a lot of the times there is an expectation and even in job posts, there's even written there that you should facilitate all Scrum events. Let's let's debate this or try to try to enlighten uh, our listeners of our views or the Scrum Guide's view over over the Scrum Master's involvement in the Scrum events. And I think we're also going to get to it when we, when we discuss the Daily Sync, for example, and the events. But from my point of view, the Scrum Master should facilitate if needed or required. But should not happen by default. Although a lot of companies I saw expect Scrum Masters to create those meetings, to facilitate those meetings, and they're focusing on the parts that you can control almost from a Scrum Master rather than the outcomes of having a Scrum Master. So I just want to hear well, Gareth, I would just want to hear your thoughts over what I've said. I agree. Thank it you. Completely de- it completely depends on the team. Um, 
with one of my teams recently we sat down we we had a um like a team charter ways of working workshop where we're looking at what you know reminding ourselves just what we've been doing what are the roles what are our, our responsibilities how do we work best what are the things that are not haven't been quite working well and one of the things i, I got them to do was i, I I put out a racy matrix, who's responsible, who's accountable, who should be consulted, who should be informed for each of the scrum events, and also who should facilitate. And a ton of, you know, kind of electronic post-it notes and got them to, to, to move things around. Who do you think is responsible for this event? Who's accountable for this? So who's responsible? Who does the work in this event? Who's who's accountable? Who, who you know, makes sure that the work gets done? Who just needs to be told about? Um, who needs to be informed about stuff? Who needs to be consulted? Who, you know, and and who who facilitates? Um, and it was really it, that was really helpful to get them to think that through for that particular team. And I think there's some some events, um, sprint review, for example. I think is very much in the the product owners. Uh, hands, you know, they're responsible for the product, for the product backlog. That's their show. I think the retrospective is pretty much the, you know, the responsibility or the accountability, the responsibility for the uh, for the scrum master to facilitate that, to enable that conversation. And then when you get to things like sprint planning, um, the way I see it is sprint planning is very much a it's a negotiation, isn't it, between the product owner who owns the product backlog and the developers who own the sprint backlog. And therefore, to enable them to to work and focus on their roles, I think it can be helpful for the Scrum Master to be to be that facilitator, to, to, to focus on the process and allow the others to just use their brains for focusing on the content. Um, but I think it depends as well. It depends on on the team. It depends on their skills and their confidences, and and I think it can also be useful for um, for other members of the of the development team, the developers for the for the, for the whole team to be able to facilitate things, so that you know if the scrum master's on holiday, they don't just go, oh well, there's no scrum master, so let's cancel the retrospective. They just go, well, we just crack on. This is our risk. This is our collective responsibility. Yeah, I, 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 I love the examples that you gave. Uh, one more thing I would add on to that is, is the daily sync. And this is something that actually happened to me. Well, the daily scrum, daily sync, daily stand up, whatever we want to call it. But I used to officially facilitate all of the well, all of the Scrum events, uh, except for the review, as you mentioned, but for the daily Scrum, I used to naturally just fall into the pattern of facilitating, uh, even in a remote setting, just share the screen and go through all of the tickets from right to left, from top to down. And I, well, after realizing that perhaps I shouldn't, because there's a lot of disengagement and a lot of folks were just discussing when it was their turn to discuss, I took a step back and then uh, I used the 
website wheelofnames.com where you basically insert all of the names from the team members, you spin it, and then whoever whoever is uh, the lucky winner <laughs> uh, facilitates Scrum for that day. And it turned out to be such a great move, such a powerful move, because the team started communicating a lot more effectively. And you will have one person who would have been silent throughout the whole meeting and would just say a few words and they would just ask around what the tickets are like what's happening with that one and they would actually because it turns out they, they may have been like senior developer or whatever and they would actually say can i help you with that I, I saw you were stuck on this ticket for two days now do you need help with this is everything okay do you do you feel like there's anything else we can do to help so it actually turned out great because it improved communication. It improved transparency for everyone. And the team is actually doing great even now. So, yeah, just wanted to add on to what Gareth was saying. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Uh, one of my teams is far less chaotic than yours. We just have a rota um, for doing that. But it, it's been amazing to see those members of the dev team who start off by saying oh I, i'm not very good at this and they're very apologetic and by two or three sprints down the line having done it um they've they're doing it they've you know they're they're facilitating it they're they're leading those discussions and um yeah, yeah it's a great way to to help the team build its confidence yeah. and trust in each other no, absolutely I, I fell into that that kind of trap as well as facilitating the the dailies, let's just call them the dailies, because uh, uh, and it just creates an unnecessary dependency. And when whenever you're not there, it, it it hinders progress. So that that's why it's probably the specifically said uh, make sure that the the events take place. They're not facilitating, and that's also the best way, I guess, to argue with again with companies that expect you to facilitate facilitate those meetings of explaining it just creates unnecessary dependencies you can be there in the background but building the team and training them to be self-managing which includes holding these those events by themselves will benefit the company and just explain to them in the long run a lot more does the scrum master even need to attend the daily scrum no but I think it's it's a it's a compromise between a company expecting you to facilitate the meeting and what the scrum guide says is just make sure that the event takes place. I guess that that would be the the compromise of like okay I'll I'll participate but I'll be in the background just make sure that everything goes smoothly. And even that will probably be more useful at the beginning once it just the the team grows together and they they get used to doing it you can yeah you can just not take place not i think one i want to mention something here because this actually happened to me uh so to start off uh it's yeah it's nice to be in the background and make sure it's happening so you don't need to be there but i was at an interview a couple of years back and the person who interviewed me asked me 
So you do planning, you do daily stand-up, you do retro, you do review. So that's like, I don't know, two, three hours per week. What do you do in the rest of the time? And I was shocked. I, first of all, why would you ask me this in, in an interview when you're looking for a Scrum Master? Because hopefully you see a value in a Scrum Master. Uh, I took it as a test, like if he's, if I'm aware of what I should be doing, but I ended up having to <laughs> recite the Scrum Guide almost, or having to reiterate some of the things that should happen and some of the things that shouldn't happen. So definitely I wouldn't be the main player in those events and that's not my main job. So I wouldn't put it as I'm doing this and then I'm doing the other things. It's mostly that I'm doing the other things and I'm supporting this. So yeah. Uh, moving forward, because I think we should do we want to tackle Scrum Master, Serving Product Owner, or the organization? Or do, do we want to put a stop to this episode and pick up where we left off in the next one? Um, I think we're, well, we're pretty much this. If anybody wants to add anything else to the Scrum Master, we'll pick up with the Scrum events for the next episode, I think. Yeah, I guess one thing that I want to add, uh, if we're moving to the Scrum events next episode, one thing that I want to say is Scrum Master serves the organization as well as the team. Yeah. To my encounter, again, uh, a lot of companies expect you to be a Scrum Master in the team and just stay there. So it's very useful for the Scrum Master to also look outside. And whenever I can, I try to look outside and I try to make sure that I'm also supporting externally as well as internally. So I just want to, just wanted to mention that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll also kind of mention my favorite part of, of all of this is the first bullet point in the serves the product owner helping find techniques for effective product goal def, you know, definition and uh, product backlog management. Helping find techniques is, it's almost like a never ending uh, task. There's always more techniques. There's always more stuff that you can learn that will not only be useful, might be use, very useful now, but it'll be also very useful uh, in the future is just continuously building an arsenal of techniques, skills, tools that you can use. And that that's also one thing that I, you know, to, to put it in your, uh, in, in that interview, I guess in my, uh, that you had, Andre, might've been an answer of like, need to research how else we can improve or continuously read, continuously learn, continuously adapt and grow. It's not just towards the team and the organization, it's towards yourself. Building your knowledge base is an active part of you. You can never be comfortable as a, you should never be comfortable as a scrum master and just kind of put your feet up and say, I've learned everything that I need to learn at this point. It's just rinse, repeat. You can almost say it's a ways of agile thing. <laughs> <gasps>
<laughs> and and there's never enough time to do everything you want to do. Yeah, it's always a matter of priorities. You know what's what what, what needs to be improved or um, what needs to be helped to flow better. Um, and sometimes that's just you know sometimes that's focusing entirely on the team or or a team member, whether they're disruptive or going through, you know, a bereavement or, you know, and just trying to support them and trying to help the team stay together. Or, you know, sometimes sometimes the team's flowing quite nicely and and the product owners needing some support. Or sometimes it's just kind of sitting back and observing the organization and going, what's not helping here? Or what is helping here that we, we could do be doing more? What are the opportunities? Um, I have a never-ending to-do list. Um. <laughs> Same. Uh, yeah, that's a nice, scary sentiment to end on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you if you're out there and you want to become a scrum master, it's a whole bag of pain, but it's hugely rewarding. Yeah. Um, I love it. I love it. Love it. Love it. It, it's the type of job that very rarely you'll you'll find two days that are the same or similar. Mm-hmm. It it always changes and you always have to adapt. Exactly. Right. So that that's a more positive way of ending it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think All we right. can end it there then. Thank cool. you. Yeah. Until next time. Bye bye. <laughs>